So we're looking at Ezra and uh, Ezra's book in the Old Testament. It's about a guy called Ezra, although he hasn't appeared yet and he's not going to appear for a, f- a few more years. Uh, years in the book, that is, not years <laughs> in my preaching. Um, this is a, a, a cartoon with Charlie Brown playing bas- uh, baseball. Lots of you know that Charlie Brown uh, has a baseball team and that they're useless. And uh, Schroeder comes up to him. He's, Charlie Brown's the, the, the pitcher, or in English we call him the bowler, the guy that throws it. He says, this guy says for me to tell you that if you throw anything that even looks like it might be a bean ball... Now, uh, Richard told me what a bean ball is this morning. A bean ball is a ball at the head. Okay, apparently. So if, you, if the ball goes near the head, it's called a bean ball. Don't know why it's called a bean ball. Anyway, he says, if you throw anything that looks like a bean ball, he's going to come out here and pound you right into the ground. <laughs> he doesn't go through with it. And I want to explore this evening how we are affected by what other people say to us, what other people expect of us, what other people want of us. When people intentionally or unintentionally intimidate us, whether they're people we love and we just are desperate to please them, or whether they're people that we're fearful of and we um, don't want to be hurt and damaged by them. Let's look at the context of this. We're going to come on to this in, in, in a few minutes. We're going to build the context round into this, talking about this subject of how we handle our fear, perhaps, of rejection or of other people. The context is that the people of God have been in exile. They've been away from their temple. It's been destroyed, uh, and the generation have died. And now that the children and the grandchildren uh, have been allowed by Cyrus to return and rebuild the temple. And God has moved the hearts, not of everybody, but of a a significant number of people. And they've uh, gone from wherever they are in the Persian Empire to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3, where we read these words. When the seventh month came, and uh, I did some research, uh, and the seventh month was probably October. Uh, Not that that helps us in August, but just so you know. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled with one accord in Jerusalem. And this phrase, one accord, just struck me right at the beginning of our time together. Because these were a diverse group of people from different parts of the Persian Empire. And what does it mean that they had one accord? It means that they had one sole purpose, which was to rebuild the temple. But they were people with different skills. We're going to discover that in the next chapter. They had all kinds of different abilities. They were not the same. And when we think about unity within Christianity or unity within humanity, it's not about conformity. It's not about being the same as other people. These were people who had uh, different contributions to make to the rebuilding of the temple. They had different abilities. And they quite probably had different emphases. They probably had different parts that they thought were more important than other parts. And for me, that's very much like church life. Because lots of you have different things that you think are really important, whether this is your church or another church, the things that really matter to you. And these people came together with their different emphasis. They probably had different strategies. They probably had different ways in which they felt it should be done and carried out. But they were of one purpose. They had one accord. 
And when we think about unity, unity is not everybody agreeing with me or with you. Because it's very clear as I look at us that God has made us to be different. We're different shapes, we're different sizes, we have different skills, we have different abilities, we have different temperaments, we have different characteristics. And I am convinced that is God's intention. So any, any attempt to make us all the same is clearly not what God intended. So what is unity? Well, unity to me is about gathering around a, a, a greed purpose. And bringing our diversity to that purpose. And that's sometimes uncomfortable. We sometimes imagine it would be much easier to be in a place where everybody agreed with us. We end up on our own, that's the problem. Sooner or later we'll find something to disagree with somebody about. So here in our church, we want to unite around this principle that God has called us to make disciples by sharing the love of Jesus. That we are committed to expressing Jesus' love in such a way that it transforms people's lives and that we're committed to doing that together. You may have spotted that that's, this is our mission statement. You may also have spotted, by the way, that in the corner that it says you can ask a question and there's a text number. And later in our service, Kath's going to come up and put some questions to me. And if you want to be uh, part of that, if you want to ask a question, something you're not quite sure about, something you want clarity about, something that perhaps springs out of what I say that you want to ask, then at uh, different points you'll see that number there and you can text that in if you're watching this live in the building. Again, if you're watching on a video, apologies uh, that that facility is not available to you. These are the perks that you have of being in the building. See, it's good. But we as a church are committed with all our strange different shapes and sizes that we are. We are committed to sharing Jesus' love. That's why we're one accord. And we want to do that in a way that's understandable and is relevant. We want to make sense of life together and share the love of Jesus. And it's been my privilege over the years to be in a number of church meetings where there's been incredible unity because we united around that's what we want to do. And we need each other and we need people who see it differently and we need people who bring different uh, uh, skills to the game. And then we read this, that when then Joshua, son of that guy there, Josadak, I'm used to this at Bible translation words, not translation, saying Bible words, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel. I know Zerubbabel because I, I don't know, I've never met him, but I think it's a great name. I'd have loved to have called my kids Zerubbabel, but uh, <laughs> Joel, Zach, and Caleb are quite... Well, they have enough trouble being Joel, Zach, and Caleb. If we'd had a fourth, it would have been Zerubbabel. Or Haggai. I've always thought Haggai. Anyway, that's another story. Uh, Zerubbabel. Just, just a little bit on Zerubbabel, just simply because I wanted to be able to say Zerubbabel a number of times. Because uh, I think it's just, it's just a lovely... We don't have that. If, you, if you've not yet got kids, have one and call it Zerubbabel. Uh, anyway, he was the grandson of the last king. So he was the last in the royal line. Uh, but he never gets to be king. He's governor for a while. And uh, early on, there is, seems a great deal of excitement about the rubber ball, but he never quite seems to deliver because he kind of peters out. And uh, Old Testament scholars debate this idea that he, he, they think he's going to be king, but he, he, he doesn't quite make it. Uh, so that's the rubber ball. And just a reminder that Ezra hasn't yet appeared. He's going to come a little bit later. Anyway, uh, Joshua, son of Jezadik, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of that other person, and his associates, began to build the altar 
of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So why was the altar the first thing that they built? Remember, the walls have gone. So they're not building a wall. They're not building a roof. They're not building a sort of inner sanctuary. The first thing they're going to build is an altar. It may have looked something similar to that. We don't know exactly, but they were going to build that first. And we haven't even got an altar. So why was that such an important thing? Well, the reason we don't have an altar is that as we read the New Testament, we, sin, we understand that many of the things that were physical in the Old Testament become symbolic and spiritual in the New Testament. So kingdom uh, becomes not a geographical place, but wherever God is made king. And temple becomes us. I spoke about that a few weeks ago, about how we become the living temple. And similarly, altar is not so much about a place, but an attitude. But here it's a thing. And why was that the first thing? Because they were doing it publicly, so all the people around would have had altars to their own gods. That was a familiar cultural thing. There were different altars, different shrines, where sacrifices were made to different gods. So by building their altar to God, they were doing something public. There were no walls to hide them. It wasn't like our church where people walk by and go, I wonder what they do in there. Well, it was obvious what they were doing in there because there was no in there. There was no walls. It was, what are they building there? They're building an altar to Yahweh. And there are four things about that which then become transferable to us. And the first thing is that they were clarifying a place of commitment. They were saying, this is our God. It was an altar to their God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. It was a place where they would come and they would kneel. It was a place where they would publicly say, our God is our God. And we honor him and we acknowledge him and we submit to his ways, and we are reverent, if you like. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of saying, this is our God, guys. And the, the whole group come together with one accord. And they would probably have knelt. And they were saying that God is first in our lives, and we want the people around us to see that and to know that. And that leads us on to the second aspect of the altar, that it was a symbol of their faith in God's presence. They built the altar there because they believed that God was with them. That's what the altar symbolized, that God was here among them. And they wanted people to know that they believed God was with them. And then they would have given thanks there. They would have made offerings of thanksgiving. They were taking the best sheep or the best uh, calves or whatever it was and sacrificed them. So it was a place of gratitude. It was saying to everybody, we think our God has provided these things and they are so precious to us. We're willing to give the best back to God. And these were costly offerings that were made. And then lastly, it was a place where some of these offerings were actually sacrifices uh, in acknowledgement and atonement for the things they knew they were doing wrong. So by publicly offering sacrifices, by publicly confessing their sins, they were saying to everybody around, God's way is the best way, and by the way, we don't live up to that well enough. And by the way, we are sinful. And they received through the offering of these sacrifices. They believed that God had cleansed them and brought forgiveness, and they could see it as a tangible thing. What's that got to do with Charlie Brown? Well, let's try and pull it together because this next verse is a verse that's really struck me. So they build this altar 
first thing to do, don't build the walls, don't build this, the ceiling. They build it publicly so that everybody can see. And then it says this, despite. Despite their fear of the peoples around them. And this word despite is really, really important. Because what the Bible is acknowledging is that they were afraid, but they still did something. They were afraid of what these people around them were saying. It wasn't that they ignored them. It wasn't that they weren't afraid. It wasn't that everything was absolutely fine and everybody was going to be great about it. No, they were afraid of the people around them. But despite that, they built this altar. And this fear was not simply of ridicule, but as we're going to find out, it would have been of, 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 of actual violence. They were afraid that there were people there who did not want that building rebuilt. They did not want that God worship. They didn't want that altar there. And they were going to face opposition. And this wasn't some uh, neurotic fear. It was a realistic fear. But despite this fear, they built it. And sometimes, well, not sometimes, a lot of the times, I think Christianity's got the wrong concept of, of fear. The Bible says over 70 times, God says, do not be afraid. But he doesn't say that because fear is wrong. Fear is useful. Fear is wise. Fear is what makes you careful. Fear is what stops you doing things that are dangerous. But God says, do not be afraid because fear can take over and be too much and can be too painful. And God says, do not be afraid because he wants us to be released from the paralysis of doing nothing and of being trapped and enslaved by the things we are fearful of. You see, they were afraid, but they did it. That's the point. They're not condemned for being afraid, but they might have been condemned if they had done nothing because of their fear. Fear isn't wrong. It's what fear does in us that may be good or bad. Charlie Brown is... Um, uh, always uh, admiring from a distance a, a girl who he really likes, but he's too scared to talk to. He says this, it's stupid to just sit here and admire that little red-haired girl from a distance. It's stupid not to get up and go over and talk to her. It's really stupid. It's just plain stupid. And then he says, so why don't I go over and talk to her? Because I'm stupid. And many of us feel stupid. And we feel that there's something wrong with us because we're nervous or anxious or fearful. But it isn't the nerves or the anxiety or the fearfulness that's the issue. It's whether we are able to go through it despite it. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the mastery of it. So in what ways might our fears be similar to perhaps their fears around building the altar? In other words, what are we afraid of by publicly doing those four things that I said to you the altar was about? Are there ways in which we are fearful of publicly committing? It may be that we've not yet been baptised. 
and we're just fearful of standing on this platform and telling people that we want to love and follow Jesus. Maybe we're fearful of not living up to it. We're fearful of those who are close to us who are saying, you hypocrite. And maybe that's the reason why, yes, we've been baptized, but we haven't in our workplace or among our friends, we try and hide our faith. We try and uh, put it in a way that people don't really spot. What did you do at the weekend? Oh, not much. What were we doing last night? Oh, this and that. Because we're frightened of people saying, if you call yourself a Christian and you do that. I need to say that the fear of somebody saying to you, you call yourself a Christian and you do that, is realistic. It's so realistic that there's no way you'll ever get out of it. Sooner or later, somebody's going to say to you, you call yourself a Christian and you do that. It's happened to all of us. In fact, if it hasn't happened to us, there's something going wrong. Because <laughs> it happens. And maybe we're so frightened of a sense of being, of it just being so difficult to follow Jesus. And this aspect of proclaiming God, that God is with us. Perhaps we're fearful of that. Perhaps we're fearful of the insensitivity of being and working amongst those of other faiths. And we don't want to, uh, we're frightened that somehow if we call ourselves a Christian, that will in some way offend other religions. I think many of us work uh, alongside folks from other faiths here in Birmingham. Most of us have discovered that it's not the people with other faiths who are insensitive. They're quite pleased when we have a faith. It's the people of no faith that they find difficult. And there may be some of us that work in contexts where to be a Christian is really difficult. And it is a legitimate fear. And so the question is, what are we going to do despite our fears? And maybe we're fearful of being laughed at or rejected, maybe within the family, maybe within the community, maybe amongst a workplace. We're frightened of what people will say. And they were frightened, but they still did it. And I want to talk in a few moments about some ways in which we can move forward in that area, where we can do the things that we feel we want to do, even though we're afraid. What, may, what is it that stops us being thankful? It may be that we are frightened that if we give thanks for our health or our job or our family or all the good things that we see in our lives, that those that we're living close to or talking to who don't have those things, that they will feel that we're rubbing it in. And so we, we hold back on giving thanks because we don't want anyone else to see it and it's difficult and these are difficult things but maybe God still calls us to be thankful maybe we're, th we're nervous of being grateful in a culture that's negative maybe the way people relate to each other in your circle of friends or in your workplace or in your family is criticism it's negativity it's moaning we don't have, if it's not the weather it's the government if it's not the government it's the neighbours we moan if it's not the neighbours it's the boss we moan and if you were to come out and say you know what I don't think it's that bad you would stand out and we don't want to do it Sometimes I come across folks who worry about giving thanks because they think the moment they give thanks, it will go wrong. And there's some kind of superstition that if I give thanks for something, God will take it away, which is rubbish. 
And lastly, where are we fearful of being of confession? Perhaps of admitting to other people that we've got it wrong and owning a different moral code to them or being considered weak. That if, we, if we're the kind of person that apologises, if we're the per- kind of person that in humility owns up to the things we do wrong, we're worried that people will exploit that and push us down and use it. Or maybe it's just difficult to live up to the change in us. And so we hide these things. John Paul Jones, the uh, um, sailor, said this. If fear is cultivated, it will become stronger. If faith is cultivated, it will achieve mastery. How do we move through despite our fears? So I want to talk uh, just... Secondly, about how we overcome fear generally. And I want to say that Kath and I did a Questions of Life a few months ago. You can find it on the Questions of Life part of our YouTube channel or our website. We went in much more detail about talking about how we handle fear. But I'm going to talk just for a moment about generally. Then I'm going to talk even more about how we overcome our fear of what other people think of us. Uh, because that's a specific issue here. So how do we overcome fear generally? The first thing I want to suggest we do is we pray, we talk to God, we bring it to him, and we say, Lord, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm concerned about this, I'm anxious about this, it's worrying me. We don't bottle it up, we don't hold it inside, we talk to God about it. And then we try and identify precisely what it is we're afraid of. I think it's very significant, they knew what they were afraid of, they could name it. I think that's really helpful. They were afraid of the people around them. They could name it. And many of us just have a sort of general anxiety, a general unease, and we can't quite put it down. And and because we can't quite identify it, it's hard to get it to work through it. So sometimes we need to sit down quietly and think through what it is exactly that we're fearful of. James Baldwin says, Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So we look full in the face of what we're afraid of. And after we've done that, we pray. You say, well, look, look, you repeated the word pray. I've repeated the word pray because it's really the secret to all of this. It's coming to God in honesty. Sometimes our fears, we don't want to think about something, so we don't talk to God about it, because if we talk to God about it, it'll bring it back into our mind and make us think about it. We go around this circle of trying to avoid thinking about something, so we never talk to God about it. It's really unhelpful. We need to try and have the courage, despite our fears, to name them before God. And then one of the things we talked about in the Questions of Life video or podcast, if you go back and find that, is to assess the probability of something. In other words, we work out, is it likely or unlikely? Some of us are fearful of things that are possible, probable. Some of us are fearful of things that are extremely unlikely. And we do, it's really helpful to try and work out which of those things it is. And if it's something that we're likely, like here, what they were afraid of was real. It was going to happen then we pray. And then I find it helpful, and, and I think many people do, is to begin to plan strategies. Okay, when this happens, what am I going to do? One of the things uh, that uh, lots of you will know, if you haven't you worked it out yet, this whole subject of fear of people, is, it's something 
that's, it's a part of my life. I'm very, very nervous of people. I'm desperate to please, sometimes unhealthily, like a, a little dog, unhealthily. I want to please people. I'm very shy. I'm fearful of, of saying the wrong thing and of being awkward in social interactions. I am incredibly scared before I come and stand in front of church every Sunday morning. So one of the things that... There's an element of hypocrisy, because, but there's an element of me saying to you, despite my fear, I can stand here and do this. Before, despite my fear, I can be part of the leadership of a church. And so this is coming a little bit more from, from personal experience. And the thing that's helpful to me is to plan strategies. So one of the things that I do, some of you will know this, is that I have thought through every crazy eventuality that could go wrong tonight and what I'm going to do. Uh, so if some of you, one of you stands up and shouts at me, please don't. But I do have a strategy. I have thought about what I will do. If something else goes wrong, if there's a fire goes off, all kinds of things, I've thought through what I need to do. That helps me. And so to face and say, this is what I'm afraid of, and when it happens, or if it happens, which is likely, this is what I will do, has really, really helped me. And if it's unlikely, if you sit down and go, I know it's hard for me to admit this, but the chances of the ceiling falling on my head tonight, the sky falling in, is unlikely. Then we pray. We say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm struggling with something which I know isn't rational. Will you help me? Lots of you will know the book by Charlie Maxey, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. Uh, he says this, imagine how we would be if we were less afraid. And that's part of the next set of strategies around how we deal with the fear of what other people think of us is to imagine being how we would behave if we weren't afraid of them. In other words, to set goals as to what we want to be like. Because our fear of others, whether it's folks who've long gone, whether it's the voices of parents in our minds who are long gone, but we're still carrying on their fears. Or whether it's the fear of our children and what they will say or do, or it's the fear of our boss, or it's the fear of our friends, or it's the fear of our colleagues, or it's the fear of our community, or it's the fear of our church leaders, or it's the fear of our church members. It's my fear. We imagine, well, if I wasn't unhealthily doing this, what would it look like? In other words, they worked out that despite their fears, they were going to build the altar. So they imagined what the altar would be and how it would be the symbol of God being with them. Because they could focus on what they wanted it to be, they went through their fear. So how might we overcome the fear of others? Guess what the first thing to do is? Pray. Pray. And we say to God, Lord, you know that I'm influenced by wanting to please. And sometimes the fear isn't that we're fearful of violence, although some of us are and some of us have experienced violence. But some of us, it's just the fear of them not being happy with us. And this is the question, how can I make you proud of me without making me ashamed of myself? That's really the issue. 
is how do we be what God intended us to be when other people don't want us to do that or when we imagine that they don't want us to do that? Well, we have to admit the fear. And I think it's helpful to identify the vulnerabilities, to recognize where it is. Is it to do with voices from the past? Is it to do with our children? Is it to do with our work? Is it to do with what friends think of us? Is it to do with what friends have said over us in the past? What is it? And to identify that. And that's not to put ourselves down. You know, remember Charlie Brown says it's because I'm stupid. But actually, we're all fearful. And this is the big lie when we think I'm the only one that's afraid or there are people I'm sitting near. We're all fearful of one thing or another because it's part of health. But we need to not be enslaved by the fear I did this cartoon this morning and none of them thought it was funny. They sat there in stony silence. Honk if you do everything people tell you to do. The point is we know that we're all affected by this peer pressure. So having admitted the fear and admitting our vulnerabilities, the thing that I find helpful is to decide on my priority. And this is to do with this imagining the fear. But for me, my priority in life is that I want to meet with God at the end of my life and I want to hear him say, well done. I am desperate to please God. I want, with all my life and breath that I've got left, to do what he wants. That's the most important thing to me. My identity is to be a servant of Christ. That's all I want. And so when I'm worried about how I've got to have a difficult conversation with somebody else in the church, how I'm going to... See, uh, I need to say that 95% 95% of the time, plea, being a people pleaser in church leadership is great because God wants you pleased as well. So that's okay. It's just 5% of the time, what you want may not be what God wants. And I might have to say no or yes or stop or start or whatever it is. And when I am aware if, I'm, if, I, if those conversations hit me without me thinking about them, they invariably go wrong, so I need to have thought about them. But where, and, I, and I will worry about them. But despite my fear, I will try and say what needs to be said. The reason being that at the end of the day, I want to hear God say, well done, and I try and focus on that, and that helps me. Helps me to think beyond this difficult thing tonight or this difficult thing tomorrow. And when I think about having to say difficult things in church, last week I spoke about money. I hate speaking about money. I absolutely hate speaking about money. But it's the next part of the passage and I have to do it. And I go, all I want to do, God, is please you. And the second it's connected to that is I want to be a person of integrity. I want to... There are lots of ways in which I feel I'm not. And one of the things that worries me is if I ever become known as a person who says one thing to somebody and another thing to another person, because that's one of the problems of being a people pleaser. You'll say what they want to hear, and you'll say what they want to hear, and actually they're completely opposite. And so I need to keep telling myself, I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person who people trust what they say. And so I hold on to those two things. And those two things are more important to me than pleasing people. 
graffiti, avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing. And what happens? You be nothing. And that's not what we want. So what I try to do is offset my fears. You know, we're in this time of carbon offsetting, of, you know, plant a tree to offset your CO2. So I try and offset my fears. In other words, what I do is I will think through what will happen if I carry on living in my fear and I don't do what I know I need to do. And I will think through what will happen if I don't say this or if I do say this. What is the likely outcome? And I work it out until I get to the point where I realize that if I carry on doing what, I'm, what my fears are telling me to do, it will be worse. And I get to the point where I can see it's worse. And then that gives me the strength to go through and do that which I'm afraid of because it's worse to sit inside and to, to go inside myself and to avoid and to take no risks and to do nothing of any value because I'm afraid. And I plan and practice my strategies, and we've talked about that already, of what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, what I'm going to say if they say this. If they say this, I'll say that. And I try and work it all through as much as I'm able. The last thing, and this is the thing that we hear from this story, is that it wasn't one guy, it wasn't Zerubbabel, who built the altar. Joshua and the others built the altar. And so the last thing I want to say is that God didn't intend us to deal with our fears on our own. But he, he puts us in community, puts us in church, he puts us in small groups, he puts us amongst people who we can say, this is what I'm afraid of. Will you pray with me that I might do it? Because when we pray, we're not praying for the feeling to change. We're praying for courage. You cannot have courage without fear. It's not courage if you're not afraid. And God wants to give us courage. That's why he says, don't be afraid. It's not because we're suddenly going to feel differently. He's saying, I want you to just go forward because I'm going to be with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. Again, from the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Everyone is scared, said the horse, but we are less scared together. And so they built the temple. Uh, not the temple, that comes later. They built this altar, and um, it, we read in, in verses 4, 5, and 6 how they offered the sacrifices. We read at the end of verse 6 that this was done before the very, even the foundation of the temple had been laid. You think it, could have been, it would have been better if they were afraid to build the walls. They could have built a really good, convincing case before God because they were afraid of what people thought. They could have built the walls, then built the altar. But they didn't. And they did it together. Courage is an everyday thing. When we look reality squarely in the eye and refuse to back away from our awareness, we are living courage, despite their fears. They look reality and they said, despite my fear, I'm going to come and kneel in this altar in front of everybody 
and I'm going to show people that this is my God and I'm devoted to him despite my fears. It's not about feelings. It's about action. It's not about feeling faith. It's about acting on faith. We're going to worship a couple of songs together in a moment and then the cast's going to come and, and ask some more questions and uh, also perhaps share some of her wisdom as well on this subject. Some questions for us to reflect on. What priority for us is devotion to God? Do we want people to know? How public do we want to be about serving Jesus? Do we want this to be known? Do we want to hide it? Do we want to keep it secret? And what holds us back from people knowing that we love and want to follow Jesus? What are our fears about being known to worship God? And where do our fears rule us unhelpfully? As Mark comes to rejoin us, we're going to leave those on the screen for a moment or two for us to reflect on. Would you stand with me? Father, we, we bring ourselves to you because we can't come any other way. We, there's, there's no point us pretending and you wouldn't want it, us to do that. We come with our bundles of fears. The ones that we fight through and the ones that seem to hold us back, we bring them to you. Father, we ask that you would give us courage. Father, we ask that you would help us to be overcomers, not victims. We bring to you the stuff you already know about and we ask you to help us. We ask you to give us strategies. We ask you to give us answers. We ask you to give us courage. Right, we're going to crack on. We've got loads and loads of questions that people have texted in. So just a few quick starters. Number one, someone's asked us, is there a version of the Bible that we use at Sutton Baptist or that we'd recommend? Um, I, I tend to use the, what's called the NIV, New International Version. So I guess most of the time we use that, not because it's particularly the best, it's just the one I'm used to. I would recommend that or what's called the ESV or sometimes I would recommend, uh, if, if reading isn't our thing, I would recommend the Good News Bible. Yeah, perfect. Someone else has also said, uh, you've probably covered this in previous sermons and services, but can you just give a really, really quick overview as to where this book fits into the context of the Old Testament? Oh, yeah, that's my exciting story. So, okay, it, it's about three quarters through. Yep, this is going to be exciting. <laughs> Do you want you more brief than that? I mean, more details than that? A little bit more. So basically, God takes hold of uh, Abraham and 
Abraham's family become the people of Israel. They go to Egypt. They come back from Egypt. They eventually enter the promised land through Joshua. They establish a king, David. They have a temple. But they continually disobey God. They divide and become two nations. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. They disobey God. Because they disobey God, God can't protect them from the stupidity of their idolatry. So they worship other gods and then they discover that those other gods won't save them. The consequence of that is the northern part, which was the bigger country, which is where 10 of the 12 tribes, Abraham, uh, sorry, uh, Isaac, Jacob had 12 sons. One of them had 12 sons. Jacob had 12 sons. And um, they became the 12 tribes. The 10 of them were in the north in Israel and they disappeared. So uh, the, the, the Judah is left, and that's where from where we get the name Jew, and that's what, where the Jews descend from. And Judah is left, but Judah does the same thing. It disobeys God. And um, Jerusalem is in the south in Judah, and the temple is there that they've built. And uh, because they keep on following other gods, God says, okay, see if they save you. And the consequence is they get overrun. They get taken, absorbed into a big empire. Initially, it's the Babylonian empire. And the Babylonian empire moves them out and, and ransacks and destroys Jerusalem and exiles them. That goes on for about 70 years. The Babylonian empire falls to the Persian empire. Persian Empire then inherits all the Babylonian empire, inherits these uh, people from Judah and Cyrus has a different strategy. His strategy is to try and get people to be happy with him. Mm-hmm. So he sends them back to rebuild a temple. That's where it occurs. Very good. Excellent. Okay, a couple more questions just on some of the practicalities of what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is about the sacrifice of animals. So you talked about the altar and you talked about that being part of it. I don't think this was a question from Joy Taylor, but it was somebody that was asking uh, a little bit confused about that. So God chooses to sacrifice the animals on the altar. Okay, so basically uh, uh, livestock is, is livelihood. Your wealth is pretty much either your uh, produce, but it's not really a farming territory it's the animals that you have in lots of low parts of the world today your in your your wealth is your animals and so when uh, as two symbols symbol of them acknowledging that everything they have comes from god like i was talking about last week about our giving was that they gave the best animal back to god mm-hmm. and it was a symbol of them saying we trust that this has come from you and we trust that we'll be okay if we give you the best one and equally, they would offer a sacrifice as a way of saying, we are sorry. We recognize that we've done wrong. So again, it was saying to God, because we trust you, we are offering the worst. We're offering the best that we've got to say sorry. So they would sacrifice these animals. And after that, they would then be eaten by the priests or the people. So it wasn't completely, whoa, wasn't completely wasted. Um, have I just suddenly made gone louder? Yep. Are you, is the sound all right on the on the up there, Richard? You're okay up there. Oh, I never would have thought you'd have said that. There we go. How's that, Richard? Oh, okay. lovely. So, 
they were giving up for the community mm -hmm. in a, ultimately that which was most precious to them so that's so the sacrifice was them giving of their wealth if you like brilliant keeping on the same theme of the altar you talked about the symbolism of it you talked about the importance of that being the first thing that was built so everybody could see actually what they were all about someone's asked a question that uh, in a lot of churches and Christianity today we don't have altars we don't have those kind of symbols that were really helpful in reminding and reinforcing some of the beliefs that they have are there other things that we have in their place or do you think that's something that we miss out on in the non-traditional sense of Christianity well I think there's two things firstly there is always the danger with an object that you lose the meaning of it and you just have the object. And, and you've got to remember, they, they had put all this emphasis in the temple and ultimately God had allowed it to be destroyed. Uh -huh. So the, the, the objects are in and of themselves. They are symbolic, but they have no value in themselves. They made that mistake. One of the reasons why the temple fell was that they said God would never allow the temple to fall. And he says, oh, I'm not I'm, I don't live in that temple. And so if we put too much store on a thing, you mustn't touch that or whatever, we've missed the whole point. Yeah. Um, the second thing is we don't have an altar because Jesus is our sacrifice. And so we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. But the vast majority of churches would have a cross yeah. to remind us at the very center of what we're doing is that Jesus became the sacrifice for us. Yeah. So we don't worship or bow before the cross because that isn't Jesus. Mm -hmm. That is a reminder of mm -hmm. Jesus. Yeah. But we will have a cross to remind us of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But that is not in itself sacred. It's a lovely piece of wood that came from our old church, and we've put some fancy lights on it, but it is not a thing to be worshipped. Mm -hmm. And there's always the problem when the symbol becomes the center of attention. Yeah. And that was the mistake they made. And now that Jesus uh, becomes the temple, becomes the sacrifice, and all of that, it's really important that we focus on Jesus and not things. We also take communion. That's yeah. not an altar or anything, but again, it's a symbolic reminder. We take bread, we take the cup to remind us of his body and his blood. Baptism. Baptism, another great symbol. Uh, we're not... We don't become a Christian by being baptised, but it symbolises our commitment. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. And so they were kind of living out their faith. Here we are. This is us for everybody to see. And you talked a bit about us and how we might do that. So I've got a couple of questions from people uh, around that. Uh, if you just bear with me, there are so many that I've got to find it. Okay, someone wrote this in, uh, and it could have been me that wrote this question. It's fantastic. What should we do if people we work with wrongly perceive us as being perfect <laughs> i mean that that could have come from my from me obviously i don't know why you're laughing what should we do if people we were so you're trying to uh live out your christian faith and there's a sense of oh you're perfect you've got everything sorted well actually we may not do yeah i think that vulnerability and honesty is really important and I think we shouldn't pretend that we don't get anxious or pretend that everything. So I think being honest is really important because people need to, people don't need 
a false faith that is perfection. They need to know a faith that works with imperfection. Mm -hmm. So I think the more we are honest, I'm a huge believer in just being, saying sorry, in owning up. If, if anybody works amongst us for long enough, they'll know that we're not perfect. And it's just being open and honest about that. And, and it, owning up to our struggles mm -hmm. and our questions and our doubts. Because otherwise we convey that you can only be a Christian if you don't have doubts. Yeah. Well, then I'm not a Christian. Well, we've talked about this before, haven't we, how some people won't come to church because they don't think they're good enough. Mm. Uh, and actually, I look around here, most of you are good enough. I'm most certainly not good enough. Uh, we all make mistakes. So it's really important, I think, to just, as you say, be real, be vulnerable yeah. and pray for opportunities just to have that in a conversation or say, Do you know what, I'm really struggling with X, Y and Z. So that actually gently you can begin to reveal the real us, mm. which I know this is going to shock you. I am not that perfect person, Donald. I'm going to confess that right now. No comment. No comment. That's very, very good. You talked about as well, wanting to please other people and wanting to be someone of integrity that pleased God. And there's a very specific question here. If you're a person who wants to please others but have been hurt so many times in the process, how can we change how we feel about pleasing God when we have a past of being hurt? So you've been hurt by life and you think, oh, can I then trust God? I think that's a really important and huge question. I, I think that um, it's important to uh, own and admit the things that have happened. Uh, and they, 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 they're not things to be forgotten, but to things that can become part of who we are in a positive way. So there will be a lot of mistakes that we won't make because we've been hurt in the past. There's a lot of naivety that we won't have. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misplaced trust that we won't misplace. So there are some, some strengths that come from being wary of people. Um, but I think it's, there, there'll be an element of saying to God, Lord, will you help me to love again? But not necessarily needing to trust. And then the big thing to me is there is a difference between trusting and loving. I'm, I'm required and invited and encouraged and enabled to love my enemies. I don't trust them, otherwise they wouldn't be my enemies. And the Bible's really clear that there are people who are enemies, there are people that damage and those of us that have been hurt spot enemies more quickly. Mm -hmm. We're not going to fall for things again. And that's okay. So it's learning how to love people that we do find difficult or that we are nervous of or that we are afraid of. And that doesn't necessarily mean being in their presence. It doesn't, and it certainly doesn't mean allowing them to damage and hurt us again. But it might mean praying for them. It might be choosing things that bless them in some way or other. It's very important to understand that love isn't the same as doing everything that somebody wants. So I think bit by bit, God takes the, the, the bits of us that have been damaged and he beautifully reshapes them into things that can become strengths. That's a process. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes some tears. It takes 
it is not an overnight thing. But we never get to a point where God says, you know what, you're so damaged, I can't use you. Mm. In fact, we're more likely to get to a place where God says, I can use this damage. Mm. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I intended. Mm. It's not a good thing, but I can redeem it. I can make something good come out of it. So I think if we find it hard to love and trust people, we acknowledge that. But there can be a way through that in some, I don't know if I'm answering that very well. No, yeah, I think that's great. I, I'd encourage people as well not to do it alone. Mm. It's obviously to do it with God, with God, but find one or maybe two people that, that you trust, that you can be honest about, that can pray with you, that can journey with you in it because it is a process and it does take time and it's very hard to do on your own. But you can get there. It is yeah. achievable. The thing is, there's two great dangers. The one is that you try to please everyone. The one is that you try to upset everyone. And both of those are equally damaging. Somewhere in the middle. So we it? both need to move in the middle. You try and please everyone. I try and upset everybody. And we yeah. need to move. Okay. Yeah. Why we're a good team. <laughs> what we're working with. Okay. So we're going to move on to look more at fears now. We've got quite a few questions around fears. Uh, the first one, uh, somebody says, fear divides us. So what would you say we could do as a community to help each other with fears so that we can come together with one purpose like they did in Ezra? Oh, that's brilliant. I think it's just being honest. Yeah. If we project onto other people that they shouldn't be afraid by pretending we're not afraid and in somehow conveying judgment and criticism, then we divide. We come together and saying that we're all battling and we're all being courageous. And, and to me, it's about focusing on being, is this about being courageous? And, mm. and you can't be courageous if you deny this fear. Mm. Uh, fear can paralyze, but it can also stop us doing some very stupid things. Yes. And it can be incredibly healthy yeah. and incredibly a useful thing. So let's not judge and condemn, but let's be open and honest. I struggle with this. I'm nervous about this. I, you know, I get frightened standing in a platform and mm -hmm. answering questions. Let's be honest about that. Let's not pretend that in some way it's easy. So we're no less a Christian if we have fears, even though it's just a Bible, human, we're a human yeah. being. Absolutely. So the Bible might say things like. Um, perfect love casts out fear or my peace I give to you it's a peace that yeah. the world doesn't understand God does give us peace yeah. that's absolutely yeah. true yeah. but he doesn't always remove our fear so just because we have fear and we don't have peace doesn't mean to say that we're not in a good place with God and we're getting things wrong no it's very important the perfect love that casts out fear is about uh, uh, we're going to go to another huge subject here it is about fearing God uh -huh. because he says fear is to his punishment, but this is the context that Jesus has died for us. So if we fear God's rejection, we fear that God doesn't love us, perfect love casts uh -huh. out that fear. So it goes back to that question, is what we're afraid of likely or rational or true or is it unlikely? And one of the problems that we've got ourselves into is that the Old Testament used word which is reverence and awe of God is often translated in the NIV and all other virtually all it's translated as the fear of God. And therefore, there's a whole load of people who think that God is frightening. Mm -hmm. He would be frightening if I have not confessed my sin, if I am going to go up to God and say, 
I don't care about it, all the damage I've done, then that would be a frightening thing to do. But the New Testament is trying to tell us with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we don't need to be afraid of God. He wants to welcome us into the, the curtain is torn. We talked about the other day. He wants to welcome us into his presence. So perfect love, casting out all fear, is about our relationship with God. It's not about my fear of COVID. It's not about my fear of uh, driving too fast. It's not about my fear of walking through the streets of Sutton at 11 o'clock at night in the dark. It's not about my fear of spiders. That's not what that passage is about. It yeah. is about my relationship with God. Yeah. And the peace that God wants, that Jesus wants to give us, is the peace of saying, I've made the right decision. I'm going to go forward. So they, they were in that place in the, where Jesus breathes on in the spirit. They go out and they proclaim, but they're still worried about it. Mm. They're still nervous. Mm. And it's this thing of despite their fear. Yes. And yes, God wants to bring peace, but, uh, and, and there is a peace that passes all understanding. But it, I, I can't explain. We, we, need, we, you have, we have both and. You have peace and don't do that because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. You've got to hold the two together. And you can have peace and still this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Step out in courage yeah. and trust me. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes helpful, not with uh, major, major fears, but I think the fear of sitting on the platform, doing whatever, makes us reliant on God. That's a healthy yeah. fear that points us in the right direction. There's a peace about it, but there's also a, it's a little bit stressful. Okay. Someone says, how do you overcome fear when it becomes crippling? So you have like this probably sliding scale of fear, don't you? You have some here. We're talking about the extreme. So you did this really helpful thing. You went through all those different points, which I think is great. Really, really helpful. What if you were at the extreme end of it? Is there anything else you would add into that? I think, I think you'll need people to be with you. Mm. I don't think overcoming extreme fear can be done on our own. We need yeah. a community of love that helps us and we take small steps. Yeah. And we, yeah, we go step by step uh, forward. And sometimes we might, might need professional help. Yeah. And that's, again, not a sign of weakness. No. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. From God. Absolutely. And, and, and part, I suppose the other thing is, to, is sometimes it's really, we talk about being damaged in the past. A big healing part is when we're able to identify why we're afraid. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. that memory will need healing. Yep. We need to pray into, talk that memory out, maybe professional help with trauma healing. Uh, but we sometimes, uh, so I know I'm frightened of spiders because I can remember when a spider landed on my neck and my sister screamed. Yeah. And I know that's why I'm frightened of spiders. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. I'm not, my life is not inhibited by it. But very often with the fears that cripple, there will be experiences or relationships that are the cause of that. Because fear in those crippling senses, it's not it's it's experienced or, or passed on. It's not just happened. Yeah. And so sometimes in prayer and counsel and share and talking about it, we need to get to the root of that and bring that out into the light. But sometimes it's forgotten and it's buried, and that's really the problematic. And, and where we can say, look, this is what happened to me as a child. This is the, how I was treated. 
and bring that out into the light. And that's painful and needs mm -hmm. people who know what they're doing prayerfully or counseling-wise to do that with us. But sometimes that's the only way to get through it is yeah. to really bring it out into the light. Yeah. I realise we are well over time. Just got a couple more really quickly. How should we keep confidence in God when, when there have been relent? Sorry. How should we keep confidence in God when there have been a, a relentless run of multiple setbacks? I think, I mean, it, it, it's painful. I don't believe the Bible ever taught anything different. I mean, these guys have gone through multiple setbacks before they have to build. The temple's been flattened. That's a bit of a setback. So I don't think we start with an illusion that there shouldn't be setbacks. But I think at different points, most of us will go through a season where we get hit and we get hit and we get hit. And all we can do is stand and we may not be able to run. We may not be able... I, for me, it's just focusing on today. I'm gonna. I need to live for Jesus, and I will not give in to this. Yeah. And asking God's strength and asking Him to help me overcome, mm -hmm. and not blaming, mm -hmm. not choosing anger, not choosing self-recrimination, but choosing hope, choosing to see where there is good, and choosing just to keep going. And not beating ourselves up that we do no more than keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of linked into that. Uh, final question. All you said was very helpful. But can you say a little more about how we build faith in the face of fear? E.g. meditation, character of God, promises of God. For example, the promise of Jeremiah must have strengthened those who returned. Yes. Yes. I think scripture, I should have said more about scripture. Scripture is really really important just allowing ourselves to know scripture to remember it to call it to mind all the time um and i think that builds faith i think being in the context of worship being amongst god people that builds faith isolation robs us of faith mm -hmm. now of course you're all in the place so you're not unless you're watching and listening to the podcast but there'll be a kind of time where we're, we we feel so low we think i can't face it we're more vulnerable then it's coming into God's presence. So build, faith is built by worship, it's built by scripture, and it's built by talking to God. Those are the three big, and to some extent it's built by stepping out and just mm -hmm. taking those small steps mm -hmm. and, and, and seeing that God has been with us in those moments. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. That is my a million questions done. Okay. Well you. done. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, I think time's gone. Yes. I was going to say Mark will come back soon, but I think time's gone, if that's okay, guys. Let's just... Do you want to pray? Yes. Let me just pray. Father God, I want to thank you for this opportunity that we have had to gather together this evening. Thank you that we've been able to worship. Thank you that we've been able to feed from your word. Father, I ask right now that you would fill each of us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would come and touch our hearts, our minds and our bodies in the ways that we need you to. For those that are struggling with fear, I pray firstly that they would know you with them, that they would know that they are not alone. Secondly, I pray that they would know the love and the comfort of this fellowship. And I pray that whatever it is that they are fearful of, that you would give them 
the courage to step by step walk out with you. I thank you that you go with us into the situations that we will face tonight, tomorrow, and in this week ahead. And I pray that you will continue to fill us, continue to draw near to us. And I pray that we would live out our faith like they did in building that altar without the walls so the world could see. Would you show us the ways that you would have us reflect you, whether that be in conversation, whether that be in our actions? Would you equip and enable us to do that in the power of your Holy Spirit, that others may see you at work in us, that others would ask questions, that others would come to know Jesus Christ for themselves? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.